Well, I'm going to invite you, again, if you haven't already opened up your Bibles, to open it to the letter of Jude, and looking really at verses 22 and 20, 23 this morning. Now, unless you've been living under a rock or uh, really trying to avoid all kinds of news, uh, everything that's going on around us, you know that there's a cultural war going on. And it's not diminishing, it's intensifying. Notice that? The enemy is pressing in to every venue of our lives. To the schools, uh, libraries, to the places where you used to shop, to restaurants you're used to, to, to going to. Everything is being impacted and affected. That's evidence of a really Satan working his agenda to permeate society with a hatred of God and a hatred for God's design um, and ultimately uh, wanting to cast, Satan wanting to cast disdain upon um, the name of, of Christ. And it's very tempting for us as believers to want to retreat. We want to retreat and create a little safe haven, safe house, where we can just have life the way that we're used to having it, where it's comfortable for us. We're not, we don't see all this despicable stuff going on all around. It's very tempting. Know that that desire is actually a good desire. What you're longing for is heaven. And don't you dare try to create heaven on earth because it's just not going to happen. The Lord calls us to live right here, right now. He calls us to be to live in the world, but not be of the world. The church is the salt and light of the earth, Jesus says. Uh, light in the, in, the, in the small L sense. We are the light of Christ shines through us. But what happens to salt when it's no longer salty? Is there any use for it? Scripture says no. Just throw it out. It's what you do at home when you know, they get to the end of the salt shaker or the salt canister, and the salt at the end of that's not very salty, is it? At least it tends not to be in our house. So throw it out. You don't worry about it. Get the new one. Jesus is using that analogy to say that salt is good when it's salty, and that's a preserving force within society is what the church is called to do. We are called not just to preserve society, but, but through the gospel and impact society. And so how can the salt, how can we be effective as salt if we're hidden away? Well, well, we can't. So the church must be engaged. At the same time, the church must not become like the world. So we can't retreat from the world. We can't be like the world. When, when we're like the world, then, then we're not salty either. The salt is, you, you know, the salt that's not salty even if it's you know in your food, doesn't help you. Salt that remains in the cabinet doesn't help your food. So those things help us to re- to realize that the church must engage. We we cannot retreat to a, a safe haven or a safe house. And the text we're looking at today from Jude, Jude twenty two and twenty three, helps us to see that. So let's just read that together. Uh, again, going to the book of Jude, and. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17 just to give us a little bit of the context and then read through verse 23. 
But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last times, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy, and for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now, Jude 20, verses 22 and 23 give you three tangible rescue techniques, we'll call them, in, in, in engaging those who have been affected by the false teachers. So these are three tangible rescue techniques that you must employ so that you can help those who have been led astray and influenced by false teachers. Now, before we get into some of the text, I want to explain um, uh, some of the, the, the background behind this particular text. Jude 22 and 23, these two verses are, have been uh, debated over the years by those who compile uh, various Greek manuscripts. There's something um, that, that's called textual criticism that looks at all the manuscripts that we have in existence and tries to evaluate like what family lineage they come from and how accurate they are. And by, by looking at all these things, and textual criticism is a good thing, not a bad thing. So in textual criticism, they're, they're, they're providing a Greek text that is very accurate to what the originals were when it was all written. And that helps us to have a trustworthy Bible. These two verses um, have a Greek um, uh, have Greek manuscripts that disagree with each other a lot. Okay? And so if you have a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, it's going to read very different than what I just read from the Legacy Standard Bible. And I just want you to understand that. So the, the, the earlier uh, Greek manuscripts, when I, say, when I say earlier, I don't mean necessarily that they're older, it's just they were compiled at a certain time in, in case what I'm talking about is, is for, what I'm talking about is the Greek text compiled for the King James Version. If you read that, it sounds like Jude is talking to two, only two groups, right? And so there's, uh, there, you have that if you read, read um, New King James or the King James Version. But in more modern translations, um, such as the New American Standard Bible, uh, NASB 95, or the Legacy Standard Bible, or even the ESV, you see that, that Jude has three groups. So he's speaking to three groups. And that represents some of that Greek manuscript. And that, that is what we believe is accurate. But I, I needed to explain that in case you're using a, a New King James Bible, and it's going to sound very different. Um, than what I just read, and and, and that's that's the difference there. So this morning, uh, we're going to take the text in the Lexi Standard Bible. If you've got a King James or a New King James Bible, you might want to use a Pew Bible just to help follow along with what I'm saying uh, in there. Um, there are sections like this in our scriptures where we're not exactly sure of the wording on these. So there's a, there's a passage uh, in, in John, in John 8. There's another passage in Mark 16 that, that's in your Bible, but it's bracketed. So this just helps you understand what's going on uh, in, in the text there. 
So this morning we're going to look at this. And, and I would say one, one of the strong reasons why we think that Jude is speaking to three groups of people and not two is because Jude has a propensity to write in threes. He's giving us threes. As we've gone through this, I've, I've pointed some of those out. But there's this, he, he likes to write in triplets. And so it's one of, the, one of the strong cases to support that Jude is speaking about three groups and not two. Now, let me explain a little bit of the context. Jude is wrapping up his letter. Other than the closing kind of benediction, we'll call it, that we'll look at in another message, Jude is pretty much done with his message. And and think about what he's done. He's, first of all, called the church to contend for the faith. We see this in verse verse 3, if you look with me there. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt a necessity to write to you, exhorting you that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down for the saints. So that's his main purpose of, of the letter. Uh, it's, it's not grammatically an imperative, but it, it functions like an imperative. He's calling us to arms. He's saying, contend for the faith, not an option that's what we're called to do. That, that truth is what we're called um, to fight for. And then, then the rest of the, pretty much the, the main body, he's talking, he talks some about believers, but mostly he identifies the false teachers. And he goes through verse after verse of this. But then in verse 17, we get to the next imperative. And you, and you see that. But you, beloved, must remember the word spoken that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus. So remembering those words, that's remembering Scripture, being grounded in the Word of God. And he calls them beloved, so remembering who they are in Christ. And he talks about, he reminds, he gives them one brief reminder of these mockers, of these false teachers that have snuck into the church. So it's a reminder of who, who those false teachers are. So remembering these things is very essential to, to them protecting themselves from the false teachers, from those who snuck in. Uh, verses 20 and 21 contain other imperatives for us. He, he says there, we are keep, keep yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So if you are doing these things, then you are not going to fall prey to false teachers. That, that's just the reality of it. If you are growing strong in the grace of our Lord and our God, you're understanding the Word of God, you're relying upon the Holy Spirit, you're remembering the Word of God, and you're remembering who you are in Christ, and that there's an enemy out there so you're on guard, you're not going to fall prey, no matter how sneaky someone gets with their, with their doctrine or with their lives. They, they're just not going to be able to pull you astray. You know, it's like the bankers, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to train new tellers by giving them, letting them handle real money. They'd handle real money so much that, that when they were handed some kind of fake, no matter how good that fake was, they knew it was fake. They knew there was something wrong. They may not be able to identify exactly what it is, but they knew there's something wrong. And, and that's what you want to do. You want to handle the truth so frequently that, that you just know it. And then when something odd pops up you're like something's wrong i don't know exactly what it is but it puts your guard up that's that's what being in the word of god does to you it kind of protects you um so jude notice jude doesn't end his letter there he just end it there 
and he had gone right into the benediction, but he didn't. What is he doing? He's he's giving us an outward look. Like this isn't just about protecting yourself. When I say yourself, not as a church or even individual individual responsibility to be growing. We have a collective responsibility to be growing. Jude isn't just doesn't just want us to like be defensive. There's a sense in which he wants us to to move out, to be offensive, not in the sense of um, uh, offending somebody's feelings, but in the sense of being having an offense to take the gospel out and rescue people who are headed to hell, who are doubting and need help. Now, let me just give you a little illustration um, uh, what what Jude is doing. And, and even before I do that, let me just say that if we're not doing these things that he's saying, they, they call these the, they call these disciplines of grace, if if we're not doing what Jude says in verse verses 17 through 21, if we're not doing those things, we're going to be in no place to help someone else. Right? In no place. So you have a responsibility to be growing, to be healthy, so you are prepared and ready to help someone else. And, and God will ordain that, that someone comes into your life that needs help. He has a way of orchestrating that. That's part of the good works which God prepared before the foundation of the world that we would walk in them. Right? So that's Ephesians 2.10 was what I'm talking about there. So these are the works that God ordains for you to go. And, and only you at times. That's, he ordains that for you, the work for you to do. But if you're not doing these things, of course, if you're not disciplined in these graces, discipline yourself, then you're not going to be prepared to help someone else. Now, I've, I've flown on a, a number of long-haul flights, nowhere near like some business people, but I, I have flown a lot, a lot of trips to Europe. And there have been even some flights where it's been so turbulent uh, that I wondered if the wings were going to snap off. Right? Those are not flights that you want to be on. They didn't, obviously. I'm still here. Um, but I think there were people praying. <laughs> Um, but all that to say is I've never been on a flight where the oxygen mask deploy, where you lose pressurization and the oxygen mask come down. And, you know, the captain puts those um, oxygen masks down. Now, the, the issue with the, the oxygen mask, um, you know, the, the, the stewards, the stewardesses, the flight attendants tell you what to do with them. Of course, most people are completely ignoring them. So when it comes to an emergency, they probably won't remember these things. But what you're supposed to do is to take the mask, pull it a little bit, oxygen is flowing, and put it on your own face first, and then help those around you. Now, now why is that? Doesn't that seem selfish? Well, it's a little bit like what Jude is saying here. Strengthen your own soul first before trying to help somebody else. Because what actually happens is if you're flying at, say, 30,000 feet and that airplane does depressurize, you're not going to be able to remain breathing long. And in fact, fairly quickly, you're going to get altitude sickness and be unable to breathe. And you may go unconscious, some people faster than others, depending on your condition. So if you take time to help others, you yourself could pass out in that process and not be able to to help finish helping them, and then you're going to be out. But if you'll just put that mask on, it doesn't take long, but if you put your own mask on first, then you're well positioned to help the people around you, your children or somebody who's elderly or somebody who's having trouble figuring that out. 
That's a little bit what, like what Judas is doing with this. He's saying you must have a strong foundation growing in grace so that you're prepared to help other people. Right? And that, that, that's what we're doing. And, and Jude doesn't just leave us um, kind of in the safe house. He's saying grow in the grace so that you can reach out. You know, we're not to, as we, to, to use kind of a silly illustration, if that if you're on a plane and those oxygen masks deploy, it's not as if you just put the mask on and you ignore the people around you. I mean, can, can you imagine how crass that would be? Um, how um, merciless that would be? You know, someone's trying to figure it out or a child or an, or an older person that can't quite figure out what to do and, and you just watch them pass out? No, I mean, you, you couldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. But sometimes that's what how Christians act. They have the gospel. They're, they're built up and encouraged. And they live such a, a life that they're just kind of watching people around them be pulled away by false teaching and head to hell without even trying to intervene. And Jude is saying these things must not be. So, so let's look at these, these tangible rescue techniques, I'll call them, that, that you must employ to help those around you. Again, remember the foundation is that you're solid in the faith and you're growing. That, that's there. That's the foundation for this ministry. He says in verse 22, and on some, and on some who are doubting have mercy. So the first technique basically is to remember that you must patiently have mercy on the doubting. Patiently have mercy on the doubting. Now the little phrase, and on some, is, is Jude's way of speaking um, to the church and uh, to say that there are some who are outside of the church. Maybe they might be part of the church, but there are some who are doubting who you must reach. You must have mercy upon them. Now remember that, that the false teachers, uh, the false teachers we're talking about, that Jude is talking about, are the ones who have crept in unnoticed. He says that in the beginning of his letter. They're, they're, they're secretive. They're, they're special ops. They, they have gone in without anybody noticing. They've donned special clothing uh, to look like Christians. Remember, these are not the false teachers that wear the big, bold um, uh, saying, you know, follow me to hell, or I love Satan, or, you know, gay Satan, I think is one of the t-shirts that Anthony saw, or something like that, you know, at the gay pride parade yesterday. You know, those that's false teaching. Um, it's false doctrine. But that's not the kind of false teachers we're talking about. We're talking about false teachers who wear the t-shirts that say, I love Jesus, or that God is love, or some kind of slogan like that. Um, those are true slogans. And that's what a false teacher, these kind of false teachers are going to don that kind of, of cloak in order to hide who they really are for as long as possible. They will eventually be revealed and there are characteristics that Jude gives us that do reveal them, but they're trying to stay hidden as long as possible. So they rope people in, deceive people as long as possible and get as many people as confused as possible and as many people on the road to hell as possible. That, that's their mission. So Jude writes... Uh, to, to to tell the church um, there are these spiritual terrorists within the church and you need to um, identify them. And the reason I'm pointing out this or reminding of these, these things is because those those people, those spiritual terrorists are not 
the ones Jude is talking about here. I read a lot of commentaries, listened to a lot of sermons on this passage, and it, and it seems like for some reason uh, a lot of commentators and a lot of pastors want to go to that. But I mean, the context of Jude, I think, is clear. You be the judge of that. I mean, in verse 11, um, Jude gives us this true state of these people. He says, woe to them. That's not, that is, that's, that's condemnation. Look at verse 13. He describes them as wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Hey, the black darkness, that's speaking of eternal judgment, that has been reserved for them forever. Right? Meaning from the beginning, God knew about them and has ordained their punishment ahead of time. Um, you know, e- even looking at what, what Jude says earlier, he, he um, where is it? Right there in verse, the end of verse 7, when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about the punishment of eternal fire. So in light of these false teachers, these false teachers are going to face the judgment of eternal fire. Not in the sense like every unbeliever will. What he's saying is these false teachers have been been ordained for punishment. I point that out, not to say that false teachers can't get saved. Certainly they can. All I'm doing is pointing out that Jude is not telling you to go find a false teacher and evangelize them. If you get an opportunity to do that, great. But they're actually quite dangerous. So you don't want to really mess with them too much. What I mean by that is don't invite like the, the trainer for the Jehovah's Witnesses into your home. Right? Unless you're well trained in your own scriptures right? before you do that. Right? Now there are Jehovah's Witnesses that barely know their own doctrine. And so you can evangelize those. Those are some of the ones kind of like being led astray. But the actual false teachers are so deadly dangerous that, that Jude doesn't even say, don't go after them, right? Now, if God provides the opportunity, of course you tell them about Christ. Of course you do that, right? But that's not the focus of Jude's message. So it's not, those, these false teachers aren't in the, the groups that Jude provides here. In this first group, he describes them as, he says, have mercy. You know, we talked about mercy in past messages. Mercy uh, is not giving someone what they deserve, but it's also giving them something they don't deserve, which edges on the idea of grace. We've talked about that before. That's that's full-orbed mercy. Full-orbed mercy is is just giving them. It's rescuing. It's loving them. It's being kind to them. It's it's all of that together. But he's he's saying, have mercy on those who are doubting, on the some. So this the phrase and on some is is indicative of this first group. The, the doubting. Who are, who are these doubting? Well, it's interesting. This, this same Greek word that's translated doubting is, is translated a different way in verse 9. In verse, y, verse 9, it's the word disputing. When Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses. Disputing. So why is it translated disputing there, but, but down here it's doubting? Right? And the reason is, is that the grammar indicates in verse 21... Um, sorry, on verse 22, that this is a like a disputing amongst themselves or within them. So it's like disputing with yourself. Right? So you know how you're wrestling with something in your head? That's disputing inside. So it's, we 
it, it is rightly translated doubting. That's the idea. You're, you're, you have one idea, but then there's this other idea, and you've got something you, that you've been told is true, but then you have something else that you've been told is true, and, and now you just don't know what's true. Okay? That's, the, that's, the, that's the state of these people, okay? where they've heard the true gospel, but they've also listened to some people that turned out to be false teachers. They didn't know that when they were listening to them, telling them something else, and so they've got these competing ideas now in their head, and and they just don't know, they really don't know what is true. Well, lots of times the church can come down quite harshly on people like that. You could say, you ought to know better. Just believe God's word. Right? And so there's a, there's a harshness to that where sometimes people have doubts and they won't express it within a church. But Judah's saying, actually, we ought to be the type of people, the type of church where people can express legitimate doubts about things they see in the text or things they, they've heard elsewhere. And your job as to have mercy is to come alongside them and help steer them back to Scripture to encourage them in what is actually true, to help them discern between what's false and what's true. Okay? That's your job to, to help do that. That's to having, having mercy here. Um, it, this word doubt is used in, in multiple places in Scripture. For example, in James 1, and you can turn there since it's not far away. James 1, verses, I'll just read verses 5 to, to 8. It's interesting how. James puts this in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Um, verse 6, But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the seed, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Now that's that's the idea here. It's the same same word being functioning here. So you ask the Lord for something, but then you doubt whether He can really supply that or not. You're not you're not doubting whether it's will. That's that's I would say that's legitimate because you don't know sometimes what the secret will of God is. What James is condemning is the person who who is doubting whether God can provide that or not, or whether um, He will He will do that. So. That is how the word is used, and, and it's used that way again. And, and another good example would be in Romans, Romans chapter 14, if you want to turn there. Or you can just listen as I read it, Romans 14, uh, verses 22 and 23. And this is in the context of, of talking about whether to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not. So there's a debate. That's what Paul's dealing with, a debate about whether you eat this meat or whether you don't eat this meat. And I'll just kind of jump into that. In verse 22, he says, The faith which you have as your own conviction before the Lord, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. Blessed is he who does not judge himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So you have, in the, in the context, you have doing something by faith and you have doubting. So if, if someone believes that they are not to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and yet they doubt, that, in other words, they doubt that it's okay to eat that, and yet they go ahead and eat it, 
to them that's that's sin. Even if it even if it wasn't sin to start with, they believed it to be sin and they disobeyed God. Right? So that 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 kind of doubting is contrary to faith and to a life of faith. All that to say is the group of, of people addressed in Jude 22 represents those who have heard God's word, but they've also heard these false teachers and now they're confused. Now they have some doubts. Um, can believers have doubts? Well, sure they can. You bet. Think about Zechariah. Hey, he had doubts and, you know, was not allowed to speak until the birth of his son. You had John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist, who had a special working of the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. And yet when he was locked up and and Jesus was not like seizing the throne of Jerusalem, it caused him to have doubts. Are you are you really the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus sends him a message that really clarifies that, yes, of course, I'm the Messiah in short. But think about the disciples. You, you probably think about doubting Thomas. Oh, yeah, doubt, Thomas doubted. Do you, do you know that all the disciples doubted? Not one of the disciples actually believed that Christ was risen from the dead until they saw him. Not one. They all doubted. Even when they had messengers, the ladies came and told them that Christ is risen from the dead. They, they, they didn't believe. They'd had doubts. So the, the group, all I'm saying is that the group that we're to have mercy on could have could be believers. You could also have some some like what I call religious unbelievers. They're attending church, they hear some things, or maybe they're just interested. They're they want to know more about Christ and about the gospel. So you could have unbelievers who are doubting that you're called to be merciful to, but you can also have believers that are doubting that you're called to be merciful to. Um, I mean, just think about the what your what our kids go through. I mean, you you raise them in your home, you teach them about six day creationism from the scriptures, and you're raising them in these things. And then and then at some point they're going to go to school, right? Whether a public school um, or to college or university, they're eventually going to be exposed to all of the challenges of evolution, and they hear some of these things. And they even have some Christians or people that call themselves Christians coming to them and saying, you know. You know, there's something called, you know, divine evolution. You know, that, that God used evolution to, to bring about creation. And so they hear these things. They hear all these facts that perhaps they haven't heard before. They haven't been prepared on how to deal with them. So they have doubts. So they need to be able to come back to you as mom or dad or to our church and say, you know, I have some legitimate, I have some questions. And if you just shut them down immediately and just say, just trust the word, you know, in some harsh manner, you may send them away where they're not going to come to you with questions again. So the, the issue here is being merciful, receiving their, 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 their doubts, and helping steer them towards the truth. They're really good answers for all the things that they're wrestling with. Right? The scriptures are accurate and are true. God did create in six days. And we just have to help them walk, walk through the, whatever doubts they're, they're wrestling with. Christians, they have lots of things they're wrestling with. Right? CRT, um, so-called women pastors, um, LGBTQ plus things. So there's all sorts of like false doctrine that's flooding the church today, that's coming in, and sometimes it's being supported by pastors and officially supported by churches or so-called churches. So we just really have to maintain our guard 
but also maintain our outlook and try to, to help those that God puts in our path who are, who are doubting. Take them to the scriptures, which requires you knowing the scriptures well enough to be able to do that. There are good helps out there, good tools out there. You can ask uh, those, uh, you know, the spiritual leaders within this church. You can ask me for help. Um, and or others of our leaders, our deacons, or um, those who help lead our church. So you want to seek out ways to help them, uh, help them grow. You know, false teachers are busy just creating lots of confusion today, and we need to be busy trying to help as the Lord gives us opportunity to them. So really, the the first uh, tangible rescue technique that you must employ is just is um, to patiently have mercy on those who are doubting. Now, the second is this. You must compassionately save the deceived. Uh, look at, go back to Jude and look at the beginning of verse 23. So verse 22 says, On some who are, who are doubting, have mercy. That's first group. Second group, and for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. Now, again, the, the phrase, and others, shows the second group. Um, and I've heard messages where they're trying, the pastors are working really hard to try to divide these Three groups and make them distinct. And it's really hard. Do you know why? Because Jude only gives us a description of the people in the first group. If you you read really carefully, the first group is described as those who are doubting. But notice what he does with the second and third group. In the second group, he says this, and for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. He doesn't really describe them at all. He just says, and others, save, snatching them out of the fire. So what is Jude doing? I think he's doing two things. When a person moves beyond the simple doubt, they're either going to go into believing the false doctrine or they're going to believe, or they're going to get pulled away by an ungodly lifestyle. So the second group deals with the false doctrine, I think. Third group deals with with the, the ramifications of pursuing a sinful lifestyle. Remember these false teachers lived in a way where they lived with license. They were licentious. They lived with licentiousness, which means a license to sin. You know, they they turned the grace of our God into a license for sin. That's what Jude tells us. So these false teachers are known by their doctrine, but they're also known by their lifestyle. So some people are going to get pulled away by false doctrine. And that's this, this second group. If people believe this false doctrine, and when I say false doctrine, I don't mean something minor that's false. I mean, this is something so faults that it sends them to hell if they believe this they will not be saved and and that's exactly that serious nature is exactly what jude is saying he said and for others save snatching them out of the fire snatching them get them out pull them back they're on the verge of entering eternity and going to hell you have an opportunity pull them back save now, in some context, the word save can be used in like a temporal sense. Like if you're talking about a literal file, fire and someone's walking to it. Literally, you can save them from the fire. Is that what Jude's talking about? No. The fire here is not a literal fire in the sense that it's on earth. This is a literal fire, but it's the fire of judgment. Where did Jude mention this before? We saw it earlier um, in when he talks about that, that that these uh, false teachers are going to face eternal fire, the fire of eternal destruction. Right? So that's that's the fire that 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 we're called to to rescue. Them. That's that's from that's the the fire that they're headed towards. What does the word save? 
He's saying, save them. Snatch them out of that. What does the word save mean? Well, it's the same word used in John 3.16 to save. Let me just read that. Read John 3.17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. It's the same word. Now, what is you talking about? I thought it was God that saves. Judas saying save. Using the same word. In kind of a context, it implies these people are headed to eternal destruction and you're called to save them? Hey, what's, what's going on? Well, what, what's going on is that the Lord is the one who saves. Most definitely. There's no question about it. Um, God is only God saves. Just, just think of John 1.12. He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Right? Even parents can't save their children in the ultimate sense. You just can't. You can point them, children to Christ, but you can't save them. Only God can do that work. Uh, you, could, you could think about Ephesians 2.8. And, and 9 and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we would walk in him. It's, it's all of God. This, this part of salvation is monogenistic, meaning it's just one-sided. God acts. God saves. Uh, think about Titus 3 5. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And He calls today to, to anyone. If you feel the conviction of sin, and that's not just a feeling, that's reality, you're a sinner, and you're going to be convicted of your sins in the day of judgment, and you're going to go to hell forever unless you believe in Jesus Christ, that He died. For your sins, that he, he he was resurrected in newness of life, and he offers life as a son of God. He offers life to all who believe. So anyone who believes, even today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, and I say believe, that's trusting him. That's just not a, a factoid in your head that's tucked away like an insurance policy. We're talking about trust. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your attorney on judgment day, he's going to save you, and you will have eternal life. So in, in that sense, we recognize only God can ultimately save. So what is Jude doing? Right? This is where we use, compare Scripture with Scripture to help us understand. So ultimately, God is the one who saves. But keep in mind, here's what Jude's saying. God uses us as instruments in the redemption of somebody else. And that's what he's doing. Think about um, Proverbs 11.30 says this, 11.30 and 31, the fruit of Right, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. See, even in the Old Testament, he who wins souls is wise. That words win in the sense of like saving. You're winning their soul. Well, can I really do that? Well, not ultimately, but you can be an instrument in that. And, and that's what the scriptures teach us. And even Paul uses the words these ways. Now, listen to Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I 
that I may by all means save some. He uses the word save, winning, saving. That's Paul's focus. He knows as the apostle of grace. I read to you Ephesians 2, 8, 9. All those passages I read about God, um, with the exception of John, that I read to you were written by Paul. So Paul affirms that salvation is all of God. And yet Paul is saying that he can be an instrument so much so that he said, my life is focused on winning souls. My life is focused on saving some. I know I can't save all, but I'm going to be trying to save some. Okay? Um, he gives these instructions to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So by paying attention to the sound doctrine, Timothy can save himself. Sounds strange, doesn't it? And those who listen to him. But it's in that sense. Uh, that's the instrument of God's working is, is through the word of God. And so by Timothy faithfully proclaiming the gospel, faithfully teaching sound doctrine, the Lord will use that to save people. God gets all the glory. He's just using Timothy, using Paul. Uh, James says a very similar thing. James 5.19 says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth, and turns, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And, and the use of the term sinner there, it, it refers to somebody who's unregenerate before. So you turn someone from sin, you save his soul from death. So all that's using the same kind of language that Jude is using. I mean, when we're told to, to save someone, save those who are who are headed to, to the fire, right? it's in the sense of being an instrument right? in that regard. We are called to be that instrument. And he uses the word snatching, snatching them. It's very dramatic. Um, it, it, it even can carry the idea of, of force. Uh, in Acts 10.30, um, Paul, uh, sorry, Luke uses this word to describe how the Roman soldiers grabbed Paul from from the uh, you know within the the temple because the Jews were getting ready to tear him apart. It says in Acts 20, ten thirty, and and as a great dissension was developing because the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, he ordered the troops to go out and take him away from them by force. That's the word, the same Greek word, snatching him, rip rip Paul out of there is what. The commander ordered his troops to do. In in Acts eight thirty eight, you have the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip ministering to him. The Ethiopian eunuch professes faith and says, "You know, uh, uh, what must, you know, can I be baptized?" Essentially, and and they stop the chariot and there's some water and Philip baptizes him. And as soon as Philip is baptized, listen to what happened. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the God snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed, passed through, he kept proclaiming the gospel to all the cities that he came to in Caesarea. So Philip gets snatched by, by the Spirit of God, snatched, run out of the water, and taken to Azotus. Right? Not nearby. It's the same exact word. I, I'm, I'm showing you these things to show you the dramatic kind of action sometimes that we have to take in rescuing people. Um, Paul uses this word again in 2 Corinthians 12, when he says he was caught up into heaven, when he had a vision, that's the same word, snatched. He was caught up. He was snatched up into heaven. And even Paul does, said, he, I don't know if, it's a, if it was a vision or if it was in, in body. I, I don't know. He says that in the text. 
Same word. And it's the same word that speaks of the church being snatched from the earth. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So I think that's talking about the rapture of the church. But even if you don't accept that, it, it, the, the text is still true. You're going to be, if you're alive at the coming of the Lord, you're going to be yanked up out of the snatched out of this decrepit planet and you're going to see the Lord. Right? Same kind of action. That's what he's talking about. So that's the dramatic action. We're talking about rescuing from fire, snatching them away. Now you can't physically um, save people but that's that Jude is urging us to, to act that way. You see someone walking to the fire. You do what you can do, what's in your ability and and um, resources to do to, to help them find Christ and rescue them. That's what that's what he's, this is about. We cannot just sit idly by and live in our comfortable Christian community. We are called to engage. We are called to save. Medina has lots of churches. But for those who go on the square, and I recommend that everybody do that at least once. You must witness it. You got to see people go to church, but they cannot tell you what the gospel is. They cannot. They don't have a clear understanding of the gospel. And if you don't have a clear understanding of the gospel, then then they're not saved. Because that's absolutely necessary for salvation, that you understand who Christ is. So, there's lots of unsaved people who are believing bad doctrine. We need to engage and not rest on our laurels and not sit back in our comfortable environments. Right? Is it is it going to be anxiety-inducing for you to do this? Yes, it will. Those that go out on a regular basis can tell you that that anxiety pretty much doesn't go away. It's still there. You just ask the Lord for help to do what you've been told to do. You become a good soldier, you rely on the Lord for courage and strength, and you just do what the Lord has commanded us to do. Now let me get to the third point. So you're to not only have you know um, patient mercy on those who are doubting, save those who are heading to the fire, but you must also cautiously have mercy on the polluted. Now with this group, what is what is Jude doing? He's he's basically saying there are people that they haven't necessarily believed everything the false teacher has taught them. But what they have done is they've followed the lifestyle of the false teacher. They're now living in sin. And that sin is destroying their life. That's, that's the false promise of sin. Sin promises pleasure, and for a time it will deliver that. But that sin, which was meant to be a servant, soon becomes a master. And it's a terrible taskmaster. Sin destroys lives. You know that it destroys marriages, destroys families, destroys children and grandchildren. So this this idea of, again, Jude returns to the idea of having mercy, right? Have mercy on them. But again, he doesn't describe the group so much as he describes our actions towards them. He says that we're to have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. So. The, the idea of fear here is not the fear of God. This is the fear of contamination. The fear of God is a good thing. Right? 
and does keep you away from sin. That's not what Jude's talking about, I think. In this context, he's talking about being fearful of contamination because you look at the remainder of the verse, what he says in verse 23, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. So, so this is a, a, a fear of being contaminated. What, what, is it, what, is he, what is he talking about? Well, let's just finish the, the kind of explanation and, we'll, and I'll circle back and explain a little bit more what he's talking about. He's saying we're to have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now, the, the word tunic, you need to understand that that's the, that's the piece of clothing that sits closest to your body. That's not the outer. That's the inner clothing. We call the underclothing. The word polluted, it's talking about something defiling. And it says by the flesh, that means by the body. This is pollution by the body, defilement by the body. What's he talking about? Excrement. So you're talking about underclothing, we would say underwear, defiled by bodily excrements. That's pretty graphic, right? I'm trying to be delicate with that. But you handle these people like you would handle somebody fully contaminated by their own excrement. Would you still help them? Yes, you would. But you would take precautions. Right? You would take precautions. Why? We're not talking about physical disease here. We're talking about spiritual disease. The reason is because you know the weaknesses of your own heart. You know that you can be led astray. Scripture says, take heed. If you think you're strong, take heed lest you fall. So you must safeguard yourself. You handle them in a way where you don't put yourself in a compromising position and fall prey to these things. There are some places you cannot go with this person. So it's it's if they're going in some places inside, you just can't you can't go there and evangelize there. It's too decrepit. It's too tempting. You just cannot go there. So you got to evangelize them elsewhere. That, that, this is essentially what, what Jude is talking about. That there are some things, there are people so entwined in their sin um, that you have to, you're still called to be merciful to them, but you have to do so with great care. Right? Lest you too become contaminated by the defilement of their sin. And, and so these, this is what Jude calls us to do. This is definitely, definitely not um, a retreat strategy. This is an advance strategy. Hey, so knowing that there are false teachers out there, knowing that there are those who um, have listened to false teachers or false doctrine and are doubting, they're confused, you're called to help them. Help them understand. For those who are who believe false doctrine, they, they believe in a false Christ. They might even name Jesus, but it might be the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Jesus of the Mormons. Well, that's no saving Jesus because that's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. Well, you've got to help them understand that. So that they believe in, in the true Jesus who, who can save. Um, and then there are others who just are so entwined by a uh, lifestyle of sin that, that you have to, you're still called to be merciful to them. You're still called to rescue them. But you must do so with great care so that you don't become defiled. That you don't fall under some kind of re- the reproach or stain of sin yourself. Now, we are called to be men and women of mercy because we first receive mercy. It's, 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 it's actually very similar to, to the idea of love. We love because he first loved us. Right? And I would say it's impossible for you to have actually received the love of God and you not be a loving person. Now, you might have some barbs on you. You might be a little difficult in some areas. But 
if the love of God really is in you, you're going to demonstrate that love at some point. I mean, it's like saying, I can get run over by a Mack truck, but I'm completely unchanged. That's ridiculous. That's a Paul Washer, I think, illustration. But the, the, it's a good one. Right? If you've received God, God's mercy, you're going to be a merciful person. You're going to need some encouragement. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing some exhortation. You need to engage. You need to be doing this. You need to be. If you're not equipped, if you're not well grounded, then get equipped and get grounded. Okay? So um, that's what our church is here to do: is to help you do that. But our Lord calls you to be those who are ministers of mercy, okay? who are intentionally ministers of mercy. Right? This doesn't make you like the internet sleuth. I'm, I'm not calling you to check the internet out and try to find all the people in there and go after them. Like just just in your own circles and spheres of influence. Your friends, your family members, your coworkers, maybe the ones that you would you would meet on the square, right, providentially, but just those that God has in your sphere of influence right now. There's enough unbelievers in that sphere. You don't have to go to the internet and look at them. In fact, I would think that would be a bad thing to do. So most people on the internet aren't going to listen in that condition. But your friends might listen. Your family members might listen. Co-workers might listen. And I'll just say here that it's not your job to make them listen. Because you can't. So you got to pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit. you got to pray for them. The Lord would do, the, do, do work in their lives. And help them to understand. God's responsible for the results. But you're called to engage and to put that um, to make the effort to try to help them and save them and be merciful to them, turning them away from sin and turning them away from false doctrine and pointing them towards the truth. Well, let's pray. Our Lord God, you, you've given us your word and the word that, that rightly challenges us, uh, come out of our comfort zones, uh, areas where it's really easy for us to sit back and just be comfortable and live life. Um, and even to want to live it for your kingdom, but all the while ignoring the lost around us and the confused. And Lord, I just ask that you would please uh, help us to be ambassadors of, of your grace, ambassadors of your mercy, that you would help us, Lord God, to, to rightly understand and apply this text to our lives for your glory and honor. And Lord, as we... Uh, celebrate communion this morning, I, I do just ask that you would help us to reflect upon our lives in, but knowing whether or not we are truly um, right with you. But if there is unconfessed sin in our lives, I just invite you to search us and know us, Lord, and just do your work in our lives, even today, as we, this morning, even now, uh, before we partake of communion. Lord, you are so good to us. You have died for our sins and been raised in newness of life. You're the God of all mercy. Lord, we praise and exalt you and just thank you for the redemption and salvation that we have in Christ, which is all of you, all of grace. It's a gift, and we just praise and exalt you for that. Just thank you, Lord, for just your work in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org.
This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.